I'd like to talk tonight about the four Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Mostly I'd like to talk about how these practices um, help us develop an understanding of interconnectedness and of balance, of uh, non-attachment. These practices help us to develop a deep care for ourselves and others, and also uh, a balance so that when we open to the joy and sorrow of this world as it is, that we can have this um, deep connection and the equanimity, the coolness. We've talked a lot about the loving-kindness practice, so I won't talk too much about it tonight. Just to remember in terms of the context of these practices, that the loving-kindness is usually the first practice that we do, and it's considered to be a foundation of us opening, of the heart opening. It's the ability to wish ourselves or others well. It's the ability to bless ourselves or to bless others. You've probably heard a lot about the near enemies or the far enemies. The near enemy merely means that the experience uh, can masquerade or seem like this Brahma-vihara, but it really isn't. So it's not, the translation of enemy, I think, can confuse us so that we can feel like um, the experience, say, of attached love isn't okay. But what these terms mean is that these aren't, these aren't these experiences. So, for example, with loving-kindness, lust or self-centered desire or attached love isn't the experience of loving-kindness. It can feel like the experience of loving-kindness, but it isn't. And of course, the far enemy means that it's um, anger is the opposite of loving-kindness, but it doesn't mean that it's bad or wrong. With compassion, we take the openness of heart that we've established in the metta and orient it toward any kind of suffering in this world, whether in ourselves or others. It's the ability to care about pain or suffering. The experience of grief or sorrow uh, or pity can seem like compassion. The experience will feel very close to it, but it isn't this pleasant feeling of care. So it's not to say that the grief is wrong. It means that it just it isn't this experience of compassion. The opposite is cruelty. With <clears throat> the empathetic joy, it's orienting the openness of heart toward happiness or joy in this world. The near enemy, meaning that the experience will feel like empathetic joy or mudita, is any kind of attached appreciation or joy. It doesn't mean it's wrong. And the opposite of that is envy or jealousy. The first three are balanced by the last, which is the most difficult to touch and understand, is its upeka, or equanimity. It's a deep balance or coolness in the face of the many ups and downs in this world, or the joys and sorrows of this world. The experience that seems like equanimity but isn't is indifference. And its opposite is reacting to the joy or happiness in this world with attachment 
or reacting to the pain or suffering in this world with aversion or fear. This particular Brahma Vihara requires a deep understanding of cause and effect or of karma. What we learn in the mindfulness practice is that we live in this human world, um, that it's, it's a vast mixture of pain and pleasure and neutrality, of joy and sorrow. And these, these Brahma Viharas are all practices to help us to connect with this life of joy and sorrow and neutrality with care appreciation, and balance. When love and understanding come together, that's an experience of loving-kindness. When love and opening to pain when, well, no, when opening to pain and understanding come together, that's the experience of compassion. When appreciating joy and understanding come together, that's an experience of empathetic joy. And then when we have this <clears throat> openness to life as it is, with, a, with this understanding, um, we, we have an experience of upekkha, of equanimity or balance. So what I'm trying to say is that the near enemies aren't to be seen as something to try to get rid of or um, not experience when we're doing these practices or in the Vipassana practice. They're meant to be uh, worked with, open to. And it's often, for example, when we open to sorrow, we might experience grief and then we'll experience the caring with the understanding. So understanding is what purifies the Brahma Viharas. Loving kindness, wishing ourselves or others well is the first Compassion, opening to pain and caring about it, is the second. The Buddha said compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. The compassion requires a willingness to touch the pain. The, the apathy is unwillingness to touch the pain. Uh, so we connect to the pain in the compassion practice, or we touch it in the Vipassana practice. Last year, when I gave a talk during the three-month retreat in Cambridge at a meditation center there, after the talk, I got so many questions about the pain in this world, you know, whether it was hunger or war or abuse, it was like so many people were concerned about what they were reading in the newspapers or hearing on the TV. So much of what we hear in the media is so much pain, so unbalanced in relationship to joy. What I find fascinating is that if we don't overwhelm ourselves with too much bad news, which it can be easy to do in an unprotected environment. Uh, but if we can take in the amount that we can actually care about, it just strikes me as so amazing that we can transform this awareness of suffering into a pleasant feeling of care. It's, it's so profound. It, it might mean that we get overwhelmed at times by the amount of suffering in ourselves or in this world. But by staying with it, by paying attention and doing the, the mindfulness practice or the compassion practices, it's possible to feel this wonderful feeling of compassion. 
instead of this enormous grief. What we tend to do when there's suffering is to back off to the point where we can't touch it and then the compassion doesn't happen. Or we tend to go into it so deeply, we drown in it. So there's this delicate balance of being able to touch it or touch it back off, touch it back off, touch it back off until there's, a, there's an acceptance of it and then the caring comes. This spring, my first niece, who I was very close to, she was born when I was 11, um, she called this spring and her husband had died, uh, the father of two of her children, and he died very suddenly, no warning of a heart attack. And it was a very long phone call. We were both crying and I hung up the phone afterwards, and I would notice during the phone call that at times I'd get really caught in the, just, the, it was a feeling of, why does this have to happen to her? You know, she has enough pain in her life, she doesn't need any more. Um, and that isn't the compassion, that's not a pleasant feeling, it was very painful for me. And it was very hard for me that she was in so much pain. But I would go through the, the pain with her and with myself, and then I would touch the care, and then the pain and the care. Um, but it's, it's a process, you know. It's not like we, we might stay totally um, in the pleasant feeling of care in a situation like that. We might move in and out of it. When I got off the phone, I was back in the, you know, why did this happen to her? It's not, it's not the right time. And the, um, somebody came to the door, and it was a neighbor who, was, who came to help Steve uh, fix our lawnmower that was broken. So he tends to, he's not really what I would call on a deep spiritual journey yet, this lifetime. And he came up and he goes, how are you, Michelle? You know, great day, huh? And I said, well, <laughs> not exactly. You know, and little tears were coming out of my eyes, and I said, well, my niece's husband just died. And he said, well, the world's too overpopulated anyway. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I was in shock. <laughs> Nobody says that when somebody dies. You know. <laughs> but I was quick. <laughs> I came right back and I said, oh, Gee, I should have thought of that and told her that. And I was kind of... <laughs> I was just kind of testing him to see if there was any, like, you know, empathy there. He didn't, you know, he, he just, yeah, great idea, walked out, you know, went to the backyard. And that's kind of disconnected. trying to open to what's happening in this world, uh, it requires an opening to pain, requires opening to how life is. This is a quotation from Dogen. Without bitterest cold that penetrates to the very bone, how can plum blossoms send forth their fragrance all over the universe? Our awareness of suffering precedes liberation. It's one of the causes for our being motivated to be free. This is a haiku from Basho. This was when he was in the most northern tip of a pilgrimage. Again, one of his most famous and the most difficult pilgrimage he went on. And he was in a very remote area 
a very difficult place and he had to spend three days in this mountain pass before he could move on. The place, his accommodations were horrendous, but he was grateful for whatever accommodation he was given. So this is what he wrote. Fleas, lice, a horse pissing by my bed. Fleas, lice, (laughs) a horse pissing by my bed. But for most of us, a flea bite doesn't necessarily evoke such a beautiful poem. (laughs) In fact, pain in this world, especially if it's in our body, doesn't necessarily bring about realization. And so, what is it about suffering that is important? You know, it's really what we do with it when we pay attention in spite of the difficulty of being a human being. This paying attention in spite of the suffering is what brings about insight and eventually liberation. There's so much suffering in this world that our awareness of it can become very heavy and dense not light, the opposite of buoyant. But when we have courage to face the suffering, often over time, compassion and wisdom develop. And these are very positive qualities to develop because they bring deep happiness and peace even though there's suffering in this world. So it's important to remember that the compassion is a pleasant feeling of care. It's a wonderful feeling. And it requires wisdom to be there. I had a very powerful teacher when I was in college who had a great balance of loving-kindness and care. He was one of my benefactors this lifetime. He trained as a naturalist and was one of the first environmentalists in this country. And he was a Quaker, he is a Quaker. In my first year of college, I was very uh, political, involved with welfare riots in the city and with the black, Ameri- black Americans, African Americans taking over our dorms. And uh, then there was the Vietnam riots and friends, <coughs> friends were going, either going to Vietnam and that was horrendously painful or trying to stay out of the draft, which was very painful. And I remember seeing the nuns and monks light themselves on fire on TV to wake us up to the suffering that was going on in Vietnam. And at that time, all of those things, you know, my age at that time and the difficulty of that year, um, I felt very, very open and I felt quite connected. But I couldn't hold the amount of pain. I didn't understand it. I felt very angry and frustrated. I didn't know this teacher very well at this time, uh, but I knew him. And most of the professors I liked left at that time. It was too painful. Or they closed and shut down. And just before my friends took over the dorm, the African-Americans, it was such a painful day. And I remember he left for the day. He canceled his classes. He went out to the woods, to a sacred place to him. And the next day when he came back, 
it was like he was so peaceful. He came to terms with what was going on. And the peace, you know, I could cut it with a knife. And it was something I'd never been around. Um, it was the first time I'd been around that uh, quality or vibration. He was so deeply rooted and committed to nonviolence and was so sure. And that sureness of it, plus the, the peace around him, uh, was, it was a very profound and important point in my life. I decided to leave school, uh, and I knew that that was my path. And I was sure nonviolence was my path and peace. I didn't necessarily understand what the next step was at all, uh, but I was very grateful for being touched um, by that peace. And I basically was trying to find a way to understand, you know, to balance uh, being connected or open to the pain in this world with understanding. <clears throat> I was very deeply moved by Titnat Han's explanation of the monks and nuns lighting themselves up on fire at that time. He wrote a letter to Martin Luther King in June of 1965, where he said that this, these acts of self-immolation weren't desperate acts of suicide, nor were they political protests. But they were just, their aim was moving the hearts of their oppressors and it calling the attention of the world to the, the suffering endured by the Vietnamese. To say something while experiencing this kind of pain is to say it with the utmost courage, frankness, determination, and sincerity. To Thich Nhat Hanh, each burning monk or nun became Vietnam herself, a lotus in a sea of fire. I don't know if you remember those images, but they were just broke open the heart if one was aware of them. And yet this was such an expression of compassion. They weren't taking any sides in the war. They were just trying to wake people up. You know, it set so many people on a path to try to find a way to nonviolence to try to find a way to hold the suffering in this world. This balancing of the care and the equanimity, it's, it's not so easy. I eventually decided to go back to study with this teacher. And it wasn't really about, um, for me, botany or ecology or environmental studies, but I really wanted to be around someone so committed to peace amidst the suffering in this world. When I graduated, he gave me a sketchbook, just blank pieces of paper to draw on. And on the first page he wrote, I flow through you to others and dance along the way. It's a nice feeling of the, the understanding he had of interconnectedness. And in those years, I felt very inspired to live up to his way of life, even though I knew it would be my own way. Um, but these people that we call benefactors really are so profound in our lives. You know, they help us to listen to what our direction is. You know, if we, if we really want to take a stand on peace or interconnectedness, 
balance, care. These people are like lighthouses for us, beacons. They help light the way. And then it's always a wonderful thing to be a benefactor for someone else. So the first Brahma-vihara, loving-kindness, is the foundation for the openness of heart. Compassion is this pleasant feeling of care for the suffering in oneself or others. And the third is mudita, empathetic joy. It's called unselfish joy, sympathetic joy. It's the feeling of joy or happiness in another person's happiness or another being's happiness. It's considered very rare in this world. The Buddha said it was very rare to experience mudita in this world. And the reason for that is because it's often easier for us to sympathize with another person's suffering. But he said that true affection had to be present for us for mudita to appear. You've probably come to understand the empathetic joy in your own way, but it's the experience of appreciation of happiness, whether it's for oneself or for another. It's um, truly an uplifting practice. I kind of like switching from compassion to mudita. Um, it's, it's like a shifting from opening to pain to opening to joy. It's wonderful. There's a song that uh, Louis Armstrong sing, sings called What a Wonderful World. And we can all know that Louis Armstrong probably didn't have the most easy life. Um, I'm sure he tasted some suffering. And yet he sang a lot of joyful songs. And this one, to me, is all about Mudita. So I thought I'd. Um, try to say it and not sing it. (laughs) It's tempting. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the brightness of day, the dark, sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Hmm. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That was restraint. (laughs) I grew up on Louis Armstrong. He was like my bottle. (laughs) One could dare say that the appreciation of joy is somewhat out of balance in our culture. 
May our happiness and our success never end. Just that that's a possibility for us to experience. Maybe we don't experience it, but just to have the concept that this is possible is such a balance in this culture. It's like we can know that it's okay to feast on joy. When I first did the practice, every time I did it for myself, I would end the phrase with a question mark because it was such a revolution for me. I'd say, may my happiness never end? <laughs> no, it was just so revolutionary. I couldn't quite get it. Um, and I've thought about some of why that is. And I had a phone call from my older sister recently. And um, I, asked, I asked her how things were going. And she said, okay. And then she said, no, I didn't say that. Or something, if I say that, something bad will happen. Um, and then she said, we're, we're just coping where we are. Uh, and then she asked me how I was, and then I thought, well, no news is good news. That was my family, no news is good news. And if we talk at all, we're supposed to complain. And that's the kind of family thing. Suffering is okay. Happiness, just the mention of it brings good luck, bad luck. Um, so c complaining is okay in my family, and the more you complain, you know, the more happy everybody is. <laughs> and if you mention happiness, everybody disappears. It's bad luck. Now, Steve's family is just the opposite. It's really interesting. So, at first, whenever I would talk to his mother on the phone, I'd start naming all the bad things that happened and was ex expecting, you know, commiseration and happiness. And she just kind of get really silent after the waterfall <laughs> was pouring. And then I'd realize, maybe I better say something good. <laughs> you know, it's really different. You know, there's different family systems. After being in Hawaii, I really saw how different cultures relate to joy and sorrow. In Hawaii, you're supposed to talk about good things. And it, there's like a celebration of life rather than kind of a celebration of blues or suffering. It was very important for me to focus on blessings as well as on suffering. In the Hawaiian songs, the songs are about rain, the joy of the rain or the joy of the flowers. And a lot of it is about friendship, the joy of friendship. Song after song is about friendship or about a town. It sounds like a love song, but it's really about a town someone grew up in, their love of that place. It's, it's extraordinarily different than what I came from. There's a great musician named George Winston who's really um, trying to promote slack-key guitar uh, music from Hawaii. And he says about the music, the sound comes from deep feelings. It has tremendous feelings of the moment, yet of nostalgia. It speaks in a language all of its own, a language of happiness of sensitivity and strength. Focusing on the happiness, focusing on the joy. I find it important to actually remember the blessings that I experience every day. If you come from a background more like mine, it can be really helpful to just stay aware of the balance in this world. Yes, there is this vast range of joy and sorrow, but there's a lot of joy. 
this friend that um, lived across the street from me came to visit recently, and when we were out in the car, it was interesting to watch us talking about the pain in our families, you know, what friends talk about. But also, when I said goodbye to her, she had this real bright look in her eyes, and she said, don't you feel blessed? If you're here <laughs> at this retreat, <laughs> you're pretty blessed. <laughs> it's, it's quite a, a place to be. It's a very protected. Uh, we do have many blessings in this world. I found it very important to remember that when I was wishing uh, Mudita, when I was going through the practice of doing it, that I could focus on simple joys for people. You know, at first I had this idea that it had to be that somebody had, you know, uh, written the most wonderful novel or incredibly successful in, in some way. And as I did it, and I started to see what I was happy for myself for, it was for very simple joys. So if you're, tr if you're doing this practice for yourself or others, it's just to tune in to what makes this person happy. Where I grew up it was near here on a lake, and pleasant is flat water to me, very flat water. For Steve, where he grew up, big waves are pleasant for him. Flat is bad. <laughs> big waves are, are good. For me, big waves are bad. <laughs> flat water is good. So if I do mudita for him, <laughs> I think of the waves. They make him so happy. With each month that the three-month retreat goes by, a new picture of a wave goes up on our wall where we live. It's like, now there are many waves. <laughs> waves bring him happiness. Feeding birds brings Carol Wilson happiness. So if I think of doing mudita for her, I just think of her feeding the birds. It's, it's so simple, and yet that's it's finding that place in someone that you know touches them. And it's, it's really easy when you do that. There's usually something <laughs> that makes someone happy. I picture my father listening to the weather report. <laughs> it really makes him happy. <laughs> This is another example of mudita. It's by uh, Opal Whiteley. She wrote a book called The Singing Creek Where the Willows Grow when she was six years old. So this is a six-year-old's mind. It's a miracle that she could write it. And it's here with us. Most every day, I do dance. I dance with the leaves and the grass. I feel thrills from the toes, from my toes to my curls. I feel like a bird sometimes. Then I spread my arms for wings, and I go my way from stump to stump, and on a down the hill. Sometimes I am a dragonfly, flitting near unto the water. Then I nod unto the willows, and they nod unto me. They wave their arms, and I wave mine. They wiggle their toes in the water a bit, and I do so too. And every time we wiggle our toes, we do drink into our souls the song of the brook, the glad song it is always singing. And the joy song does sing on in our hearts. 
so did it today. Remember that? <laughs> hmm. Mudita gives to equanimity the mild serenity that can soften its unmoving appearance. It's called the divine smile on the face of the Buddha. Loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy um, are the first three which lead into the equanimity, which um, isn't indifference to the joys and sorrows in this world. It's a, it's a openness and caring for the joys and sorrows in this world, but with balance. It's cool. For me, it was hard um, to switch from mudita to equanimity. It was like I felt like I'd been on this high and that I was kind of crashing into the sober reality of how life is. When I first started it, I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> back to reality here. Um, meaning that we can focus on the joy, we can focus on the sorrow, we can focus on the metta, and yet, no matter how much we wish ourselves or others loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, things are as they are. Things, all beings meet their joys and sorrows according to natural law. The traditional f translation is ownership of action, or we are the owners of our actions. Our happiness and our sorrow depend upon our actions, not upon our wishes for ourselves. Equanimity in the face of the vast range of joy and sorrow in this world is peace. It's unconditional acceptance of how things are. The heart is open. It's not isolated. It's connected. But it's balanced with wisdom. Unfortunately, we can't fake acceptance. We can't really fake any of the Brahma Viharas, but equanimity is really tough to fake, even though it can look, um, indifference can look good, you can usually see through it because one doesn't feel the person's heart open or connected. Indifference, which is the feeling, it, it feels like equanimity, but it isn't, um, will often lead to passivity or denial or inaction non-responsiveness. And it, it's important not to underestimate the power of denial or the power of indifference. Equanimity or balance or coolness doesn't mean not, not taking action to change things in this world. Many people mistake equanimity to mean non-action. And that's just not true. So say you were around somebody who was hungry or saw a picture of somebody who was hungry. Uh, a spiritually mature person uh, would be touched by that suffering. Their heart would be open to that. And would, we would support action. We wouldn't just say, oh, that's just how it is. If compassion is balanced by equanimity, we don't get overwhelmed by that experience of, of, of touching the, the pain of hunger. 
we don't drown in the grief or the, or the despair, nor do we get caught in blame. Equanimity doesn't mean that any cruelty or horror in this world is right. Accepting that it's happening doesn't, doesn't say that um, certain behaviors aren't <laughs> wrong or that they're not acceptable. Certain behaviors aren't acceptable. They aren't okay. And yet they're happening. And it's so hard for us to understand that. You know, this, this acceptance doesn't mean saying, okay, <laughs> let's not do anything about it because things are as they are. It means that we respond with a balance of care and coolness, that we're not adding into the situation more aversion. The, the aversion doesn't help anything, and it just adds more pain into this world. So these practices of mindfulness and the Brahma-viharas actually can help us respond to any suffering in this world with this deep balance of connecting, but non-attachment. An example that I often give of this is, say, say you were in a car accident and you had to go to the emergency room and you were really hurt and you went in and the nurse started sobbing or went hysterical, would that be helpful? It's important to see that what would be helpful at that point would be somebody who stayed equanimous. And it would be nice to have some care in that moment, but having somebody stay pretty cool and be able to respond to that that place where we are at is very helpful. And as you can see, the most wonderful thing in that moment or moments would be somebody who really was able to care, but could stay detached enough <laughs> to be functional. Uh, it's, it's an important example to remember when we wonder about, you know, does equanimity mean not taking action? It means we take action, but with a coolness that's helpful. That doesn't mean that there are times when we don't close down. Indifference is okay. It doesn't, sometimes our hearts will close. Sometimes the pain is too much. Or sometimes grief will come up. And there are times when we're really needing the space to experiencing the numbness. It's okay to numb out. It's okay to, to, to um, start crying with grief. And then out of that, if we can open to it, the equanimity will come. It's difficult for us to understand the suffering in this world. And sometimes um, it's helpful to have a perspective of why some people suffer. Uh, This is from the Dalai Lama. It's also possible for very negative people to experience their positive karma ripening immaturely due to the very strong force of negative actions and thus to exhaust the potentials of their virtuous actions. They experience a relative success in this life while others who are very serious practitioners as a result of the force of their practices bring upon this lifetime the consequences of karmic actions which might have otherwise thrown them into rebirth and lower realms of existence in the future. As a result, they experience more problems and illnesses in this life. It's an interesting perspective. When we see so much Uh, joy and sorrow in this world, of course it helps to have a a long-range view of an understanding of cause and effect, of karma. 
And the Buddha said that this was the most difficult thing to understand. He said that the results of karma were nearly impossible for us to understand. And I think there's a tendency for us to get too simplistic with that um, teaching. It's very complicated. So for example, uh, just keeping in mind again, it's the results of karma that's hard to understand. It's not that it's pretty easy to understand that if we are motivated out of aversion, that somewhere down the line it's going to cause some suffering. And if we're motivated by desire, that somewhere down the line it's going to cause suffering. And in terms of what's coming up for us moment by moment, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, uh, to try to figure that out is it's kind of insane because it's, it's the ripening of karma that can be happening from ten lifetimes ago or two minutes ago. Uh, this past January, Stephen and I were at a wedding and it was kind of late uh, at, at night toward the end of the wedding and I was sitting down in a chair and then I stood up to leave and there's a incredibly large woman, very large, with these spike-high heels and who was quite inebriated, um, didn't see me really standing in front of the chair. She was tired and her legs must have hurt and all she really saw was the chair. (laughs) And so, um, just as I was standing up, Um, she backed into me and stepped with the spike high heel on the top of my foot. It was incredibly painful. I mean, in terms of my moments in in this lifetime, it was, you know, for those, for that 15 minutes, it was really one of the top 10. It was, it was just total agony. And I didn't really want to ruin the wedding, you know, by screaming my lungs out. So I kind of, I held it together and Steve ran and got ice and we kind of moved out slowly. Steve got the car and all the way, you know, down this hill we were driving and I was going, I have such bad karma, I have such bad karma, I have such bad karma. (laughs) It was very painful. But that's a bit simplistic, you know, it is bad karma on one level, it, you know, anything unpleasant that we receive on a level is bad karma. But any time you try to figure out why such and such a thing is happening for you or for someone else, it's a mystery. It could be like the Dalai Lama says sometimes in this lifetime, you know, because of the fruit of our practice, the suffering is coming out so that it's making it easier on us in the long run. It's so hard to say. Taking the wider view or the longer view in terms of the joy and sorrow in this world is really um, wise. It requires understanding. When I was a young child, really young, on stormy days, like really rainy days when I couldn't go outside, or snowy days when I couldn't go outside, I would go down into our cellar um, when I would feel really lonely. Uh, And the cellar was quite cold and unfinished. And there was one window that was kind of smoky and there'd be these shafts of um, light that sometimes would come in, even if it was rainy or snowy, but there was a kind of light that would come through the smoky window because the cellar was so dark. It was kind of like a feeling of a cathedral. Um, It didn't look like a cathedral down there, but the column of light (laughs) felt like what you would see in a cathedral. And sometimes I would sit down there for hours 
and watch the dust particles in the light moving and how quickly they moved. And I would, I would really realize that we were all made up of this dust, just dust particles, the trees, all of the people, everything. A lot of our mindfulness practice is helping us see that, seeing that there's really nothing solid here, just these amazing particles or waves of light moving very quickly, meaning when we understand that, that nothing is worth being attached to. This deep understanding that nothing is here, um, and yet we're so interconnectedness, we're so interconnected, is a very deep understanding, but helps us to hold this vast range of joy and sorrow in this world. interconnectedness and emptiness, deep teachings on our spiritual journey that we come to understand on deeper and deeper levels. I was listening to the radio driving the other day, and a man who had AIDS himself, Um, his sister had AIDS. And when she was dying, his mother came to her day by day and had an instruction book on how to die. And this made him very angry because he feels that um, dying is something that you can't learn how to do from an instruction book. And that actually it is going to be very different for each of us. And this man, it was so beautiful to listen to him talk about this because his mother would read to his sister saying, as she was dying, can you find the white light? You know, find the white light, find the white light. Over and over, and he kept thinking, well, maybe it's purple. Maybe it's yellow for her. You know, why does it have to be white? Uh, and it was so wonderful listening to the profundity of what he was saying, that really it takes so much attention for us to die. And to have this any idea that it's going to be uh, the same for any of us, when we're all so unique anyway. And that really it takes a lifetime of paying attention to be open to that, those moments, you know, that are so transformative and powerful. You know, and he had such a sense of the beauty and dignity of those moments when we do have this attention, the power of the caring, this balance of the caring. Um, His mother was well-meaning. She had the care, but not the understanding. What we're doing here is so important. Developing this deep care and deep balance. Let's sit for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.